the Lord. It's good to worship the Lord, you know. One of the, uh, this has nothing to do with my sermon, it's just a word of inspiration. One of the distinctives of the Christian faith, you don't find worship like this in any other religion in the world, you know that? You go to the Buddhist temples, the mosques, you don't see people stand and praise in the Lord like that. We have a reason to praise and worship the Lord because we worship a living Savior, a risen King of Kings, and what a blessing. So uh, thank you, uh, Lauren and worship team, for leading us today. For those of you who uh, haven't been with us recently, in our current teaching series, we've been looking at the book of 2 Timothy, which was the Apostle Paul's final message to the early Christian church and his young protege, Timothy. And last week, Pastor Rick took us through 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 10, and the Apostle Paul's warnings and instructions there to believers about living faithfully in the last days. And now today, we're going to continue on with this theme by focusing on the remainder of this section, and specifically, I want us to focus today on Paul's commentary his counsel to us on the significance of God's word, the Bible, which Paul reminds us is a powerful resource for living a life of faith in these last days. So if you would, why don't you follow along and read with me. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. You can see it on the screen behind me or follow along in your own Bible. Paul says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, Patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now here's the section we're going to focus on this morning. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. A few weeks ago, I was in downtown Minneapolis at a meeting with some other pastors, and uh, in the afternoon, later in the evening, I was driving home up 35W, right around the University of Minnesota, and uh, as I'm turning the corner on 35W by the U there, Up ahead of me, I start seeing all the traffic, all the cars in front of me, brake lights coming on one after another. And uh, so I start slowing down and I pull up and here I am on 35W stuck in this huge traffic jam. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, this is just great. You know, it's uh, late in the evening. I'm trying to, I'm rushing to get home. I want to see my wife and kids for a little bit. I've got another meeting to be here at church later that night. And I'm just thinking, this is great. I'm going to be late. Well, as I'm sitting there in my car, listening to the radio, all of a sudden the, uh, the radio announcer comes on and says, one of our local news networks has their eye in the sky up in the air. Their helicopter traffic reporter was up in the air over downtown Minneapolis. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the helicopter traffic reporter gets on the radio. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever heard of the helicopter traffic reporter, right? And the helicopter traffic reporter says, if you're on 35W heading through downtown Minneapolis right now, you're stuck in a huge traffic jam, uh, and she says, there's an accident up on County Road C up ahead of you. And the helicopter traffic reporter says that uh, if you can, if you haven't yet reached it, you can bypass the accident by heading east on Highway 36, then cut north on Snelling Avenue, and then you can cross back over uh, to 694 and 35W and make your way home safely and on time. All right? Now, I'm sitting here in this rush hour traffic, just completely stuck, and I'm hearing this helicopter traffic reporter tell me the way that I should go to get home safely and on time, right? Now, at this point, I have a couple of options. I could say to myself, who does she think she is? I mean, how arrogant, how narrow-minded claiming that she knows the way for me to get home. I mean, who does she think she is? I could do that, right? Or I could do the smart thing, and I could say to myself, she's a mile up in the sky. All right, she sees things that I can't see from my vantage point. She knows the problem that's ahead. And she knows the route that will lead me safely and on time home to my destination. And friends, I would have to be absolutely foolish not to heed the counsel of the helicopter traffic reporter in the sky. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because from her vantage point, she sees what I cannot see. She knows what I do not know. And she's reporting to me the problem and the solution, the way that will lead me home and on time. And I'd have to be foolish to ignore her counsel. And friends, the point of the story is this. If someone who is in the know, if someone who is in the know tells you the best route to go, it only makes sense to follow their guidance, right? Obviously. And this, friends, is, exactly, is actually the exact same claim that the Apostle Paul is making here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 today. Paul is saying to Timothy and to the church that God is our heavenly traffic reporter in the sky. Okay? God is our eye in the sky. And he reminds us here that God, our all-knowing creator, the one who is most in the know, has revealed truth to us here in Scripture. God has spoken to us and revealed truth to us here in Scripture. Take a look again at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, and I believe Paul meant woman too, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now friends, Paul uses a curious phrase here in this passage that we need to unpack a little bit. Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed. Now what does this mean? That's kind of a curious idea, God breathed. Some of your translations may say all scripture is inspired by God or maybe breathed out by God. Well, the Greek word Paul uses here is a word 
theonoustos, theonoustos, and it literally means that the scriptures were produced by the creative breath of God. Now, how did this work? Because obviously we know that the Bible had human authors, right? I mean, we're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul. But Paul's claim here is that these very words were breathed out by God. Well, the Apostle Peter actually further clarifies for us this process of God's inspiration of the Scriptures. Take a look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, where Peter helps explain this process to us. Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now what's Peter saying here? Peter here is reporting to us that the production of the Bible was a supernatural event. It was driven by the Holy Spirit, whereby God created his perfect revelation to men and women. A supernatural work of God. Maybe an illustration can help us here. The famous 20th century theologian, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he used to describe God's supernatural inspiration of the Bible as being analogous to God's moving upon the womb of the Virgin Mary to bring about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Dr. Barnhouse said that even as the Holy Spirit came upon the womb of the Virgin Mary, and despite her sinful nature, her imperfections and her limitations, God moved in her to produce sinless and perfect humanity for Christ in the incarnation. And in the same way, God also moved upon the minds and spirits of the authors of Scripture, so that in spite of their sinful nature, in spite of their limitations in the areas of language and culture and scientific knowledge, God's Spirit moved upon them to produce his perfect message to humanity. Friends, both of these phenomena were miraculous. Both of them were perfect births. One of the Son of God, the other of a book, God's Word. But both of these were supernatural, miraculous events of God. You see, friends, the Bible calls the Bible, God's Word is called the Bible, <laughs> sorry, the Bible is called the Word of God. Let me clarify. The Bible is called the Word of God because the whole transcript was God-breathed. These are God's inspired words. It's not a human creation, friends. It's a divine revelation. Now here's the deal. If this is true, if what Paul and Peter are claiming here in these passages are true, if the Bible truly is a supernatural revelation of God given to men and women, friends, the, the implications of this are huge. If God has really spoken to us, if this collection of books contains his revealed truth, that changes everything. 
and the implications of that would be huge. And just like with the helicopter traffic reporter in the sky, if this truly is the inspired word of God, friends, we would be foolish not to heed God's counsel here in Scripture. So the question before us today is this. Does the Bible really bear the marks of a supernatural, divinely inspired work of God? Because if it does, friends, as I said, the implications of that are profound, huge. Last spring, I was teaching at an apologetics conference in Wilmington, North Carolina. And on my way home from Wilmington, I was in the airport waiting for my flight, and I ended up striking up a conversation with a gentleman sitting next to me in the, in the gate. And uh, it turns out this uh, gentleman, he was a homosexual guy, and he was actually flying back to the Twin Cities to spend the week with his boyfriend here. And uh, while we struck up an interesting conversation, uh, we were talking about, you know, the recent political debates about gay marriage. And, and uh, during the course of our conversation, this gentleman, uh, I told him that I'm a Christian and uh, actually a pastor. Well, right away, he blurted out, he said, well, you're not one of those Bible thumpers, are you? I said, well, you better not talk to anybody in my church, but yeah, I said... Uh, I said, well, you know, to be honest with you, I, I actually believe that the Bible is God's word. And God's word actually has a lot of important things to say to us about all areas of our life, including our sexuality. Well, before I could explain anything more, this guy interrupted me. He said, why would I believe a book written by a bunch of old, dead white guys? You ever heard something like that before? And I said, sir... I just said, man, I'm sorry, but you're sadly mistaken. I said, if that's what you think the Bible is, you're really mistaken. I went on to explain to this man what the Bible truly is. I said, first of all, the Bible's not a single book, but rather the Bible is actually a, an amazing collection of books. 66 books, in fact, written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years written in three different languages and on three different continents. I said, this is no single collection of books. This is a single book. This is an amazing collection of books. And I said, what's even more amazing about this impressive collection of books is that within God's word, this amazing collection of books, we find a common theme, a common storyline about God's love and his redemptive plan for men and women. A common theme and storyline from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to end. And what's more, not only do we see this common theme and storyline, but we find no errors or contradictions within any of these books. I said, the Bible, sir, is actually an amazing collection of books. And I went on to give him a challenge that I've shared with people all over the world in my travels and teachings. I went on to share with this gentleman, I said, sir, you know, if you don't believe that the Bible is something special, a truly miraculous work of God. I said, let me just give you a challenge. I call this the Bible challenge. I said to this guy, I said, sir, if you don't think that this book is truly something special, here's the challenge. I dare you. I challenge you to go to any library in the world. You can go to any library in the world and find for me any 66 books. You pick them, any 66 books you want. Books written by any 40 different authors, you can choose books from any 1,500-year period of history. You pick. 
You can pick books written in three different languages, books written on three different continents. But I said, here's the challenge. You need to find for me a collection of books that matches these criteria that we see in the Bible with a common theme and a common storyline with no errors or contradictions between them. Well, this guy, he thought about for a second and he said, that's impossible. And I said, it is impossible for any human collection of books. And I went on to share with him, I said, but sir, the Bible is no human collection of books. In fact, this unity of scripture is one of the chief marks of God's divine inspiration of scripture. You know, I uh, shared that Bible challenge with people all over the world, and actually a couple years ago, I wrote an article about that Bible challenge and this incredible unity that we see in Scripture. And uh, two months ago, I'm sitting in my office here at church, and I get an email out of the blue from uh, a bishop of a Mormon church in Arizona. And this bishop of the Mormon church, he forwards me his, the article that I had written that he had found on an apologetics website online, and he writes me to thank me for writing this article defending the inspiration of the Bible. You see, Mormons actually believe in the Bible, but they also have their own man-made books that they say take greater precedence over the Bible. But he had passed my article about the authority of the Bible onto his entire church, and I could see it in the email. There were about 80 names that he had forwarded this to. And he was writing to thank me for defending the truth of the Bible. Well, I just very kindly, I wrote him back and I said, you know, sir, that's great that you appreciated the article I wrote. But I said to this guy, I said, you know, it's too bad that you don't apply the same type of scrutiny to your own Book of Mormon. Well, he wrote me back and he said, well, what do you mean? So I just, again, I kindly wrote him back and I just explained, and this actually leads me into point number two today. Not only do we see this amazing unity in the Bible, But friends, the scriptures are also geographically, historically, and archaeologically accurate and verifiable. You see, other religions claim to possess the word of God, like the Mormons with the Book of Mormon or Islam with the Quran. But none of these books of so-called revelation stand up to the standards the Bible sets. For example, consider the Book of Mormon. Mormons claim that the Book of Mormon is a second testament of Jesus Christ, a record of his work among the supposed two great North American tribes of uh, the Native Americans known as the Nephites and the Lamanites. They say that Jesus came and visited these peoples after his ministry in Israel in the first century, that he came to work among the Nephites and the Lamanites here in North and South America. However, friends, when you examine the Book of Mormon, you'll find zero evidence, geographically, historically, archaeologically, for anything written in it. There's not a shred of evidence for any of the locations mentioned in it, any of the events it details, nor for any of the people groups that it's centered on. I mean, what you find is that the whole thing is simply a man-made fraud. In fact, I've been challenging Mormon missionaries for years. You know when the Mormon missionaries, they ride their bikes up to your front door or you run into them at McDonald's here in Chisago? You know, I'll have a conversation with these Mormon missionaries and, and I'll just very politely, you know, I'll just, you know, straight start talking to them. And, and, uh, and I ask them, I say, you know what? I will become a Mormon tomorrow 
if you can produce for me a map of anything recorded in the Book of Mormon, any of the locations mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Bring me a map and I'll become a Mormon tomorrow. Well, you should see these young Mormon missionaries. They get all excited, you know, and they go riding back to their, their local wards and they tell their, their bishops, hey, Pastor Jason's going to become a Mormon. Where's the map? And you know what? I never see him again. Because there is no map. The whole thing was a made-up story. With the Bible, however, friends, we have tremendous geographical historical and archaeological accuracy. When we look at the Bible geographically, you know, friends, we can go today to virtually all the places mentioned in the Bible. They're real places. They exist, both historically and today. We can go to Israel today and we can swim in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on the water. We can wade through the River Jordan where the Israelites crossed into the Promised Land. We can walk the streets of old Jerusalem We can walk the very steps up to Temple Mount that Jesus and his disciples would have walked up to to get to the temple from the Mount of Olives. Friends, these places exist. They're real locations. We know where they are. They're verifiable. When we look at the Bible historically and archaeologically, the Bible's history has been consistently and repeatedly confirmed. In fact, modern archaeology has never once disproved anything written about in in God's word. But instead, the science of archaeology regularly finds evidence supporting the Bible's record. Take, for example, the Hittite Empire, which the Bible speaks about in Genesis chapters 15 and 49. The Bible describes this Hittite Empire as once being one of the greatest empires in the world. Friends, do you know that prior to 1960, there was absolutely zero evidence anywhere outside of the Bible for the existence of the Hittite Empire? And secular scholars used to point to the Hittites as an example of fabrication in the Bible or historical error. But you want to know something? During the 1960s, archaeologists digging in northeastern Turkey, you know what they discovered? They discovered the capital of the Hittite Empire. And over 35,000 clay tablets, a whole library detailing the Hittites' history, all of which corroborated what the Bible had been telling us all along. Since the 1990s alone, archaeologists have confirmed the Bible's story of the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down during the conquest of the Promised Land. In northern Israel, an Aramaic inscription from the 8th century B.C. was found that reads, The House of David... This is now the earliest non-biblical reference to King David's monarchy, which liberal scholars used to believe was simply a biblical fabrication. In Jerusalem, archaeologists have recently discovered three clay seals, 2,700 years old. They read, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Remember those names from our story series earlier this year? Friends, I could go on and on. The more historians and archaeologists discover, the more we see the truth that history really is his story. The Bible is a real, accurate representation of God's work throughout human history. It truly does bear the marks of God's divine inspiration. One of my favorite examples of the Bible's divine inspiration can be found in the hundreds 
of fulfilled prophecies we see in Scripture. When you consider the Bible's prophecies on the Messiah alone, friends, did you know that within the Old Testament we have over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah? All of which were specifically fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. When I was a senior in high school, actually the summer of my graduation from high school, my father, uh, for my graduation, took me on a three-week trip to Israel. What an incredible experience that was. And uh, we spent three weeks touring all of Israel. We went down to Egypt, went through, throughout the Middle East, Jordan, Lebanon. Incredible experience. And on our way home from Israel, we ended up uh, on the airplane sitting next to an elderly Jewish couple from New York. And they had been over in Israel visiting, and, and uh, we struck up a conversation with this elderly Jewish couple. And uh, my father, he asked him an interesting question. He said to him, he said, tell me something. Why do Jewish people have such a problem accepting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah? Well, they just kind of looked at us and, and said, well, what do you mean? And my dad said, well, you know, the Old Testament, your book, your Bible is actually full of incredible prophecies pointing to Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah. And when we went on to share with them some of the amazing prophecies in the Old Testament, detailing the coming of the Messiah, all of which were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Prophecies like Micah 5.2, written in 700 B.C., that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, also written in the 700s B.C., that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53, which portrays the death, the burial, the eternal glory of the Messiah, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, an incredible prophecy, which graphically portrays the crucifixion of the Messiah, friends, 800 years before crucifixion was even invented. Read it sometime. It's like reading a report of the crucifixion. 800 years before human history ever even knew of crucifixion. After spending about an hour going through these various prophecies with them, this Jewish couple, they were fascinated. And I'll never forget the, 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 the husband sitting next to my dad. He looked at my dad. He said, that's all in our Bible? I mean, no one had ever taken the time to simply show them the amazing prophecies that Jesus truly was the Jewish Messiah. Friends, there are so many more. I wish I had time to go through all of them this morning. This past spring, I was teaching at a Bible school in Oregon, and during one of my sessions, I was sharing with the students there some of the amazing prophecies found in the Old Testament. Well, one of the students in the class, who I found out later had been questioning his faith that year, during the question and answer time, he, he raised his hand and he asked a great question. He said, you know, those are all fancy stories, Mr. Carlson, but how do we know that they weren't just inserted into the Bible hundreds of years later? You know, that's a good question. And it's actually a claim that many skeptics have tried to make over the years. Many critics of the Bible have tried to argue that the early church simply made up and inserted all these stories to make it look like the Bible was some kind of miraculous book that could foretell the future. There's just one problem with this claim. And this leads me to point number four. In 1947, a junior high Bedouin Arab shepherd boy 
was out searching for his lost sheep in the hills of Qumran, the wilderness of Qumran, near the Dead Sea in Israel. And as he was walking through the wilderness of Qumran, uh, he had his shepherd's sling with him, like David used to strike down Goliath. And he was wandering through these canyons, and up on the cliffs, there were caves up on the cliffs. And so he was taking his shepherd's sling, and he started slinging stones up into the cliffs just for fun. And as he's walking around looking for his sheep, he's, he's slinging stones up into these caves. And all of a sudden, he throws a stone up into one of these caves, and he hears something, a sound like something shattering. And he goes, what was that? So he takes another stone, slings it up into these caves. And he gets curious, what's going on? So he climbs up the walls to these caves, and what does he discover? Well, this young shepherd boy discovered what is arguably the greatest archaeological find in history. He discovered what have come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, a huge collection of ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament dating to 200 years before Jesus Christ. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found every single book of the Old Testament, portions or entire manuscripts of every book in the Old Testament except for Esther, all dating from 150 to 200 BC. What's amazing about this is when scholars compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to our modern day translations, the Dead Sea Scrolls showed that our contemporary translations of the Old Testament, your Bible, friends, is 99.9% accurate when compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls written in 200 BC, 200 years before Christ. And that 0.1% discrepancy, simply punctuation or grammar errors that had absolutely no bearing on the message of the text. Friends, in over 2,200 years, God's word had remained miraculously preserved and unchanged. Nobody has tampered with God's word. What about those prophecies? They're all there. Found in these manuscripts written 200 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. God's miraculous preservation of the New Testament is equally impressive. As of today, modern archaeology has discovered over 5,300 complete Greek New Testament manuscripts and over 24,000 portions of the New Testament from the first three centuries after Christ. The earliest portion of the New Testament that we have today is called the John Rylands Papyri. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John dating to within the lifetime of Jesus' disciples. The Gospel of John was already being circulated in the lifetime of those who knew and saw Jesus Christ. And just like with the Old Testament, our contemporary New Testament has proven to be 99.9% accurate when compared to these ancient manuscripts. Friends, I share all this with you today because you need to be encouraged And you need to know that God has supernaturally preserved and transmitted his word through the generations so that all of humanity could know and be confident in God's revealed truth to us. The divine inspiration of scripture truly is amazing. And as I close this morning, we simply need to ask the question, why did God do all this? Why did he go to such great lengths to not only inspire his word, but to protect it, to preserve it, and to accurately transmit it down through the generations. Why did he go to these great lengths? 
Well, friends, God wanted us to know his heart and his love for us. He wanted us to know the truth and how we could experience life and life to the full. Most importantly, he wanted to reveal to us his plan of salvation and how we could be reunited with our creator in a relationship with him. In fact, the whole story of the Bible, friends, can be summed up in one simple verse. John 3.16. In fact, Martin Luther, Martin Luther once described John 3.16 as God's word in miniature. The whole Bible can be condensed into this simple verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Friends, that's why God gave us his inspired word, so that we could know him, so that we could know the truth, so that we could know the way to eternal life in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. You need to understand this, friends. The Bible really is God's love letter to men and women. God loves you so very much that he gave us this record of his word so that we could know him to know his heart and his love for us. Let me just close with this. I know a lot of people in my work as a pastor, I talk to a lot of people and they say, Jason, I just, I've never been able to get into the Bible. You know, every time I pick it up, I just, I find it boring. I struggle to understand it. I don't know where to start. I, I, I just never been able to get into it. I heard a story one time about a young lady who had been set up on a blind date. A few weeks before this blind date, she had been down a her local bookstore, and she picked up this book off the shelf that looked really interesting to her, you know, this novel, and, and uh, she went home, and she sat down in her recliner one night, and she started reading through this novel. And uh, she read the first chapter, you know, it wasn't really good. She gave it about two or three chapters, and finally she just couldn't get into this story. She wasn't into it at all, and so she just put this novel up on her shelf and forgot about it for a couple weeks. Well, two weeks later, she ends up getting set up on this blind date by one of her girlfriends. And she goes out on this date with this guy, and this guy turns out to be this incredible guy. I mean, he's handsome, he's charming. I mean, they have all these things in common. She just, she's just enthralled by this guy. And in the course of their conversation, it turns out that this guy is an author. And more than just being an author, she finds out that this guy wrote the novel that she had bought a couple weeks ago. Well, friends, when this guy takes her home at the end of the evening, what do you think was the first thing this girl did? She ran to her bookshelf, and she picked up that novel, and she read that novel that evening from cover to cover. All of a sudden, it became the greatest book she'd ever read. Friends, what changed? What changed is that she had fallen in love with the author. She had fallen in love with the author. And friends, I want to encourage you today, if the Bible has been a struggle for you to read and to enjoy and to understand, maybe it's a question of have you truly fallen in love with the author? Do you know who it is who has given us this amazing collection of books? Do you know his heart and his love for you? Because if you fall in love with the author, friends, it changes everything. And I want to encourage you today, to fall in love with the author, maybe for the very first time, to put your trust in God and his son, Jesus Christ, who gave us this incredible word. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this amazing record of your work in the world, Lord, your love letter to men and women. We thank you, God, for the inspired scriptures that you've given us to lead us to life and life to the full, to reveal truth to us as a guide for our lives. So as Paul says, we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, Lord. We thank you for how you've so supernaturally inspired and preserved your word that we can be confident in it and we can boldly profess the truth that you've revealed there in it. God, uh, I just pray that all of us would have a greater heart, a greater passion for you, and in that, Lord, that we might be inspired to dig into these truths that you've given us. Just like with that helicopter traffic reporter, that these wouldn't be just words on a page, but that these would be guidance for our lives, Lord, that we would be foolish to ignore, because you and your sovereignty and your wisdom has revealed to us the way, the truth. And help us grasp that and desire to live by that. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.